Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 15th, we're studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. St. Peter concludes his table of duties by giving instructions to every Christian to respond to evil and reviling with blessing. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz is Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be here as always. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3 today. Pastor Agrotowitz, what do we need to know about this epistle and the context going into our verses for today? Yeah, sure. This epistle is packed with theology. I mean, every line is just loaded with things. And I think when you're looking at Peter, First uh, Peter, it tells us know who is he talking to here. And, and the opening line tells us this, that he's talking to the elect exiles of the dispersion in these provinces, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But that phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion, uh, tell us a lot. One, the elect. These are Christians who have been elected uh, by God. So you see the doctrine of election right there, chosen by His grace. Exiles, that term may also be translated as sojourners as well. And of course, these Christians are both. They're exiled, they're spread apart, they're also sojourning. We don't fit in this world, we're in the world, but not of it. There's that idea right here. And we're passing through. I mean, for any Christian, heaven is our home. We have a citizenship with our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're here temporarily. And then dispersion, coming from this term, dispora, that's an Old Testament term uh, applying in the Old Testament to those those Jews who are outside of the precious Holy Land. And here it's taken to mean these Christians, again, who are dispersed, spread abroad, Christians really, really throughout the world. This letter is intended to spread so he's writing to these provinces, but the idea is that this letter needs to get out, and every Christian needs to hear what uh, St. Peter is saying. So that's who he is addressing this to. And these Christians, they need to be reminded of who they are. So Christian identity is extremely important for these saints who are going through a fair deal of suffering and persecution. And that's another very powerful theme in First Peter. These elect Christians throughout the world particularly these provinces that Peter mentions, they're undergoing through a lot, and they need to be reminded of who they are, who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them, the inheritance that they have, that they would be able to stand tall in accordance to God's holy word and face everything that is coming coming their, their way. This epistle opens with Peter establishing just that, that you, O child of God, you have been bought, you have been purchased, ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and by his power he is keeping and sustaining you for that inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, it cannot be defiled, because it's an inheritance from God, and he has secured it for you. Uh, The testing that they are undergoing, you know, Peter certainly does not shy away from that, is for the testing of their faith, 
uh, that they would be genuine and um, even approved. So there's a real uh, trial by fire going on here. But nonetheless, as they go through that fire, they need to be uh, reminded of who they are. You belong to God. He has secured an inheritance for you. He has purchased you by the blood of Christ. And so all is going to be well. And of course, once he has established their identity, who they are, what Jesus has done for them, what God has secured for them, he'll go into a little more of a description of, you know, what does it look like to be uh, one called to be holy, one set apart for God, and how you are to live, and, and one of the big things being abstaining from evil and wickedness, and living a life that doesn't represent the wickedness of the unbelievers. That, that time has passed. These Christians have been called out of that darkness into the marvelous light of God. They are a chosen people, a, a, a royal nation, a holy priesthood to God. That's First Peter 2, 9, a rather popular verse. So God, even though they are dispersed, he knows those who belong to him. He sees the definite boundaries of this nation. And being that they are the people of God, their behavior, their conduct, it does matter. And they're not to fall back into the old pagan ways of wickedness, but they're, they're to emulate their Lord Jesus, certainly follow his example by sharing in his suffering, and uh, really blossom with those good works that God produces. I mean, all of this stuff is touched upon in Peter's epistle. And, you know, I, I think it is just tremendous that when he talks about the Christian life and what that looks like, Peter constantly reminds us of why why we do the things that we do, good works, the Christian life. He keeps taking it back to Christ crucified and salvation that God has given. So it's really an epistle that points and testifies strongly to God's saving work in Jesus Christ. And that, that never goes away. You know, I would argue that, is just, that just runs throughout the epistle, even as St. Peter dances around other topics that are important. You know, front and center, as we go through the crucible of suffering, is... God has justified his people, God has saved his people in the work and person of Jesus Christ, and because of his saving work, we have an inheritance, we live as holy people, we will do those good works while trusting in the forgiveness and mercy of God. Um, chapter 3, he talks about submission, and, and excuse me, before even 3, there's talk of submission to governing authorities, uh, servants and slaves to their masters, Chapter 3, he touches upon marriage, particularly wives submitting to their husbands, and even the role of husbands to their wives. And then after that, he's going to uh, dovetail into verse 8, and that's where our text starts today. And my subtitle in my Bible is Suffering for Righteousness' Sake, and I think that is an appropriate subtitle. So by the time we get into our text for today, you know, St. Peter has laid a tremendous amount of groundwork. Again, who we are, what we are to do. So by the time we get to suffering for righteousness' sake here in this text, uh, the, the reader, we, should have a good understanding of, of the objective, certain promises of God. And, you know, when we are suffering and going through a rough patch, there is no other comfort, there is no other help than our Lord Jesus. And what he has done to save us and what he still does to sustain us, his people. So there's certainly nothing in here turning us to rely upon ourselves or seek our own flesh for strength. St. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, continues to point us to our Lord and our Savior 
even while we suffer and, and go through whatever storm we're going through. It really is quite amazing how Peter preaches law and gospel both so seamlessly going back and forth between the two at just the right moment. And as you said, always reminding us as Christians where our identity is found, why it is that he would call us exiles and sojourners is because we are not of this world. We belong to Christ's heavenly kingdom. And he constantly reminds us of that, even in the midst of this this table of duties that we've we've called it at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. You know, some of the most beautiful parts of gospel that Peter gives are in this section, the end of two, where he's talking about the sufferings of Christ in the midst of, of his talk about marriage. You know, he, he talks about the imperishable beauty that belongs to the Christian, or he talks about the being an heir of the grace of life in the previous verse to ours. It, it's just, it's marvelous to watch him do this and to just to see how, how saturated this epistle is with with that gospel, that good news of who we are in Christ, and then how that that does affect our our lives as Christians in this world. This is really a, I mean, you talk about the the context of this, you know, of this text that we've got today. There's just so many things in this one text where you you can see Peter having, as you said, he's he's built for, up to this moment throughout, and he's going to keep riffing on these themes throughout. It's just, uh, this is a, a marvelous epistle. And <laughs> when I when I was dividing it up for this series, I was like, okay, eight to 12, that's not many verses, but there's so much here. I, I think you said it's, it's packed. It's just, it's it's astounding. Yeah, yes, it really is. And, you know, as I was preparing for this, I, I read through the epistle. It's not very long. It doesn't take a long time. But yes, every line is just filled with so many good discussion points. Uh, I mean, there's just, I mean, where do you begin and really where do you end? And as Peter weaves law and gospel in together seamlessly, it's just a tremendous epistle for the Christian. And, you know, it's towards the latter end of the New Testament, but we can't let it get overshadowed by Paul's great epistles, you know, to his people. Those are wonderful and tremendous works, no question about it. But we got to keep reading the New Testament and look at look at St. Peter as well as Christian readers, and not not forget this tremendous epistle that just really you know echoes everything the Holy Spirit has said through Paul and then some. All right, so we are in First Peter chapter three, beginning at verse eight today. Peter writes, "Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind." Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's our text for today, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12. Pastor Agrado, it's verse 8. We have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's five sermons in one verse right here that we could we could preach. Let's let's work through each of those in turn. Again, finally, all of you, he's, he's kind of wrapping up this table of duties, and he's speaking to all Christians. The first thing he starts with is unity of mind. What does Peter mean? Well, at the very least, we need to be united of what we believe, teach, and confess as a church body. 
that we think the same things about divine matters, because in turn, by thinking the same thing, uh, we should also so behave and act in the same manner. So, I, you know, when I, when I see this about unity of mind, I think about the pastor's call to, to labor for his congregation, that there's sound doctrine amongst the people, and there's a real unity in what they, they believe. Because when you have people believing a variety of different things, you're going to have problems in the parish. And so St. Peter you know, wants people not to be misinformed, but to, to really labor to understand the sound doctrine delivered to us by the Holy Spirit, that there wouldn't be fragmentation and separation and division, which can cause just tremendous pain. I mean, as anybody, even in a family, would know, when there's division, that sword comes you know, slicing through a family, it hurts. So back to the Christian congregation, uh, we want people to be catechized, to be taught, to understand. So there's unity amongst the people. Uh, we're thinking along the same lines, and by the grace of God, hopefully making decisions that are that are peaceable and agreeable with one another. And also, too, at the Lord's Supper, we want unity, a table where Christians are gathered, and you don't have a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, people of varying confessions up at the Lord's table, but we seek to have a table of people who are united around what our Lord has said. We say amen to it, and we confess it together, and we receive Him together. I mean, that's what, that's what we're laboring for here. And a comment about, you know, how I have an ESV, it sounds like that's what you were reading, too, as well. But finally, all of you, another way that might be, might, might be rendered is, uh, to to this goal or to this end, it's a telos, and hmm. you know it, it can it can be in a couple different ways. If you look in the lexicon, finally is okay, but there seems to be a goal in mind, something that we're just seeking for and laboring to get. I mean, you know as well as I do, and and I think most pastors do understand trying to find unity. Boy, it's a constant endeavor on our parts to work towards that, because the devil is always working to have disunity. You know, he's always trying to divide and to conquer, and so our quest for unity, our goal, it's always imperfect in this life how we go about achieving it. Congregations have issues, Satan is always there, but that does not mean we don't seek and pray for that unity. That doesn't mean we don't work towards it. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, it'll never happen, so we're not going to work towards it. No, that's not what the Spirit is telling us here. Our goal, our end, we want that unity where people believe the same thing, and it's just going to have a profound effect on the congregation when there is when there is peace and people are thinking along the same lines and confessing and, and you know, frankly, believing what the Lord Jesus has given. I mean, sound, healthy doctrine. We want everybody to adhere to that and not have a mixture, a hodgepodge of varying beliefs that can only lead to trouble. The unity of doctrine, I think, is really important here. When you think about a Christian congregation living together like Peter is giving here in verse 8, it's got to start from that true, solid, biblically grounded teaching that God has given us in his word. It has to start there. That's where our unity has to come from. The, The unity of mind isn't something that we create. It's something that is given to us by God in his word. And, and then it is lived out in the life of love within the congregation. And, and as you were talking, and this, this unity of mind that Peter starts with, I think there's, there's a bit of a contrast to some of the situations that he's been speaking to 
in his table of duty. So, and this is what I mean. When he talked about the Christian's relationship to the government, you know, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And we know the kind of human institution Peter was was under at the moment. It was the Roman Empire. Peter's probably in prison because of that Roman Empire. And and so, you know, he's he's in subjection to that government that is hostile towards him. When when Peter then turns to servants, he tells servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, and not just to the good ones, but to the unjust ones. So I mean, like over and over again, Peter is is talking to people. He's laid out how they live as Christians to those who are not treating them as Christians. Even when he when he talked to the wives there at the beginning of chapter three, you know, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, and so forth. So he's he's talked in to Christians who are living under the authority of a non-Christian. But now as he turns to address the whole Christian congregation, it's like he's saying, this works both ways, you guys. Look at each other in this same love. Because we know, I mean, you know, think about Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry and how often they were jockeying for position. And, And that just didn't work. And Jesus even says, that can't be the way it is among you. It has to be whoever's going to be first will be your servant. Whoever, or let's see, whoever's going to be greatest will be your servant. Whoever will be first must be last. And and it's like Peter's calling the whole congregation to that same unity of mind, starting with the doctrine, so that in the life of the congregation, it's not about, you know, I'm not trying to prove myself greater than you. And you're not trying to prove yourself greater than me, but rather I'm working to serve you just as you're working to serve me. Yes, a, a mutual encouragement between between the parties, between Peter, between his congregation, and their relationship yet yeah, to these institutions that you mentioned. Their relationship to such institutions uh, should also be practiced in how they treat one another. And you know, they're going through a lot. You mentioned about the Roman Empire and what's what they are doing to Christians, what they're going to do to Christians. I mean, the persecutions are coming, and they're going to keep coming. This unity of mind is more than just holding hands and singing kumbaya. <laughs> and this unity of mind, the, the, the true unity, that is going to cause them to weather these really severe storms isn't external, outside. It isn't something like, you know, if we just... If we just get rid of closed communion and let anyone who's everyone come up to the rail, that's going to solve a lot of problems, and that's going to make our congregation more peaceable. Not at all. Absolute nonsense. And that's not what St. Peter is saying here when he spends especially the first two chapters laying a strong foundation in doctrine, namely getting back to the idea of identity. Who you are, what you have, what Christ has done for you. This is a doctrinal, um, a doctrinal treatise that is superb on the front end, because the people need to know these things. Their minds have to know these things and believe these things, if we ever want unity. And that's what's going to help them weather these storms, whether it's persecution from family, local authority, statewide authority, national authority, wherever it comes from, however it comes. Their stance in a good, sound, the rigorous doctrine that the Spirit has given to us that is what's going to help them. Of course, God's sustaining them through that, uh, but their minds need to be in tune with the doctrine the Lord Jesus has given them, mm. which is far different from any sort of shallow external unity, like what we deal a lot with today, right? Get rid of all the uh, quote-unquote non 
necessary, the unnecessary articles of faith, and let's just get down to the basics, and that's what's going to carry us. No, now's the time for catechesis, just like it was in Peter's day. Maybe I'm getting on a little bit of a hobby horse here, a little bit of a rant, but, you know, I do think this is important in this day and age, when there there does seem to be a strong current in Christendom to say, let's just let's hit on a couple of basics, and the rest of the articles of faith, uh, we can take or leave them. You know, baptism, Lord's Supper, confession, absolution, even the sternness of the law, we can water all that stuff down as long as you believe in the gospel. That's not going to help us. That's not going to aid us and strengthen us as we're going through the things that we're going through. Doctrine matters. All of God's Word matters. And, and so, you know, we have to pay attention to that. And as we, too, labor for unity... It's important to keep in mind, our minds seem to be unified, but it matters what our minds know and what our minds don't know. For sure. And I, I don't know that it, I mean, maybe it might be a hobby horse, but I don't think it's off base for, for First Peter. You know, think about, I, I picked this up from listening to, to something that Pastor Brian Wolfmuller was saying about this letter. You know, think about what Paul is doing, or not Paul, Peter is doing here. And, and he's, I mean, he's writing in the previous chapter, he's addressed servants particularly, slaves, some of the, the lowest of the low in society. He's talking to them and he expects them to know the Old Testament. He expects them to know their theology. You just look throughout this this letter, and it's it's dripping with the Old Testament. And and Peter expects that these Christians who happen to be slaves that they're going to know it. I mean, you know, Peter certainly expects that this unity of mind that he's talking about starts in doctrine. Because if, if if we're just trying to come up with some sort of unity on our own, you know, like you said, I don't know if you do that in Brenham. We don't in Smithville, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. <laughs> you know, no, we don't. <laughs> if, if that's if that's all it is, then that's a very a very shaky foundation. Rather, Peter has, has told us who the the chief cornerstone is, and it is Christ, the one who is crucified and risen, and and that's where this unity of mind, this unity of doctrine, has to be founded. And and on that, we do have a firm foundation for this this life that he does describe. So we've got a few minutes here before our break. We can pick up a few more of these terms. He also says, as a goal, there is unity of mind, but also sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humble mind. Take Start taking us into those. Well, my, my first impression is these are extremely difficult to do, uh, maybe especially for men who just do not, I mean, to have a tender heart. You know, what is that exactly meaning right here? But sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, these are all good attributes and virtues for the sake of the neighbor. So well, let's take it apart a bit. So sympathy, you know, you're at least making an attempt to relate to somebody. Maybe put yourself in their shoes and to really try to understand what they're going through. Uh, That's a very helpful practice for any Christian, and it's tremendously difficult. Our flesh gets in the way, but to be sympathetic is a good, godly thing to do. Even if it's hard, even if we're, we're hearing somebody's cries and pleas and we're rolling our eyes on the inside, we should repent and, and do this for the sake of our neighbor who, who needs your help and needs your aid. Brotherly love is, is deeply connected to that. You have a sense of loving somebody because they're a fellow Christian with you. We have brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should love them as they are in Christ and not just see them as just, you know, some other person, but a person that God loves, a person that God created, and therefore we should love them too, uh, not just because God has made them and they are our neighbors, but God calls us to love them. Having a tender heart instead of a hard heart 
is good because, you know, the heart that is in tune with God's Word, the heart that is faithful, you know, is the heart that is going to help the neighbor when the neighbor is in need of something. And then a humble mind, that one jumps out at me as well. You know, in our minds, there's always the tremendous temptation to think we are just so intelligent and so smart, but we have the answers, and so therefore we're not going to entertain somebody else and their ideas. That's not a humble mind. But the humble mind is the mind that, uh, you know, quite simply realizes there's always more to learn. We should be listening to our neighbor when they have a plight and a concern, and we can't fall down the path, we can't go down the path of arrogance and always irrigating and elevating ourselves above our neighbor. So it's sort of the mind that is just so caught up in ourselves. Uh, the humble mind is the one is the mind that understands we need to be taught, right? Mm. We, and maybe that's where we should take this. The humble mind realizes we need teaching. We always can learn more, um, and not just from our, our neighbor. There's, there's certainly things to learn from our neighbors, but we always need God to teach us. There's always more to learn, and we do need to uh, you test the spirits, learn to discern, but never become haughty in the thinking. We don't need to be taught. that That's just false. The Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession and Absolution, Lord's Supper, six chief parts of the Catechism, we never graduate those things. Mm. Our own Book of Concord filled with our confessions. That's not material we graduate from. Uh, we have to recognize our own humility before God, that we constantly learn our sin is always getting in the way, and, and, and that's just a little bit of what is entailed in that humble mind phrase. It really jumps out at me, uh, and it's just as important as the other ones. I think that that really connects back to what we're talking about, unity of mind and, and unity of, of doctrine, that I, my constant willingness to learn, to be taught what the Word of God says— to conform myself to what that word says and and teaches me. Just a, a couple of, of thoughts on, on some of those other, you know, sympathy here. I've, I've pulled out the Greek text, and that that's pretty much just a, a transliteration of the Greek word, sympathes, is, is the Greek word. But, you know, it, it it takes its its root back to to suffer with someone, which I think I mean that that certainly fits with the theme that Peter's been bringing out here in his epistle that as Christians we actually suffer with each other, you know. And and again to, to think about that table of duties where where maybe I'm the servant suffering under my master and my master's not suffering at all. As Christians we actually suffer together, and then that that word that's translated in the in the ESV as a tender heart. And you'll have to forgive my Greek pronunciation here, but the the word is oisplanknoi, and and this is a word that that is translated in the Gospels, or at least part of that word, splanknizomai, yeah. is the is the word that Jesus does. He he's the one he has compassion, but it's it's more than just you know what I feel in my heart, but it's like. I, I actually my heart goes out to the person. I I you know I'm I'm moved to mercy because I see this other person in their suffering. It's a really you know a tender heart. It, that that's fine. There's nothing terribly wrong with that. But it, it's it's a stronger a, a more deep seated thing than that. So that's that's just a couple of thoughts. And and I'm sure you you probably want to respond. But I'm gonna let you do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at First Peter chapter three with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 15th. We're studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 with Pastor Ryan Agrodowitz. He is associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church in and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrodowitz, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 8, that list that Peter gives. Took the break, didn't have much time for you to respond. Go ahead and, and respond to any of those words there in verse 8 and then jump into verse 9 for us, what Peter says about how we respond to evil and reviling. Sure, yeah, I'll just make a, a quick comment on verse 9, tender heart. You know, as a guy, when I hear that, you know, I, I kind of want to just kind of uh, uh, revolt at that a little bit. Cause what I mean, to call somebody a, a tender-hearted is almost a sign of weakness. That's not at all what that word means. You mentioned that Greek word, splakonisomai, which does have this real gut-wrenching movement of compassion towards somebody. And that's what it means, really, to have to have a, a, a tender heart. You know, maybe a good way of talking about that is when people say, my heart really goes out to them. Uh, you know, that is a roundabout way of that person saying their heart is really moved towards somebody because of their plight and what they're going through. That's what we mean by tender heart. This is not a phrase of weakness or, a, a, um, yeah, a person who is, is even timid is not, is not the word right there, but a heart that is filled with a, a deep sense of compassion towards the neighbor. So that, that's what I would say about a tender heart. But let's move on into 9. So in verse 9 here, yeah, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So a few things right there. You know, it really is the height of Christian love when even an enemy reviles you and they malign you, and you don't return such evil to them, because you, you, you have a love for them that is so so strong and even powerful that you see these people who are maligning you and hating you, they have much more serious problems than their animosity towards you, and that is if they are you know, persecuting you because of what you believe, uh, they literally have hell uh, coming down the pipe towards them. Their eternal destiny is at stake, hence the reason we should pray for them and try to love them as best as we can, because the Christian love towards them does see and understand there's much more at stake than you suffering from them, but their eternal destiny, I mean, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, gets you into hell. And so we, we see, we should see that contact when we're dealing with somebody who's giving us persecution and even causing us to suffer. Also, too, when we think very highly of ourselves, this is what happens when everybody gets offended. You know, part of the reason we're offended so easily is that we just have a very high opinion of ourselves, and we think, how dare they do X, Y, and Z to me because I'm great and I don't deserve these things. So, again, having read chapters 1 and 2 and a good portion of 3, especially that phrase about having a humble mind, we're not to be arrogant and haughty. We see ourselves in light of God's law and His Word, that we are sinners saved only by His grace, without any reason to elevate ourselves above our neighbor. That's very helpful, because when we see ourselves 
in light of God's law and what it does to us, accusing and exposing, you know, suddenly the sins of our neighbor, the log is removed from our eye, and we see just a speck in theirs. And we want to help them, and we, we seek to love them and do these things, even when they revile us, okay, uh, our love should be there for them, and we should pray for them and do what we can to help them. And this is Christ-like behavior. So St. Peter in chapter 2 will talk about Christ, that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's verse 23 of chapter 2, and that's the behavior of a Christian. You know, we are to be Christ-like in that regard, that when we suffer too, we don't hurl insults and threats, but we take it, we pray, and on the contrary, says St. Peter, instead of reviling for reviling, we bless, and that's what we, uh, uh, to that we are called. Uh, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, I've always thought this was interesting, you know, that, that's the powerful verse that says, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Christian life entails proclaiming the excellencies of God, blessing when we can bless, and that includes even when we're engaging an enemy who's reviling us and accusing us of many things. Uh, you know, we are to bless and proclaim, and then it says that we may obtain a blessing. That's the, the behavior we're called to have. Surely we, we fail at it, but we're talking about the ideal here, what God uh, commands and desires of us, and so every Christian needs to hear those. Yeah, I mean, the the matter of Christ-like behavior, I, I had that written down in my notes too, you know, 1 Peter 2, what what example that, that Peter gives us there of what Christ did. <clears throat> in, these, in this verse 9, as you were reading and talking about it there, of, of what this means, you know, to to not repay evil for evil, but instead bless. <clears throat> this isn't, and to go with what you're saying about tenderhearted and, and words like that, this isn't sort of just like rolling over and doing nothing, but it is to, you know, to receive evil and instead of paying back with evil, to pay back with good. And I was I'm reminded of of the way that that Peter and John and the other apostles, how they put this into practice in the book of Acts on multiple occasions in those early chapters of the book of Acts, the apostles are arrested for preaching the name of Jesus. And and what do they end up doing? Well, they, they receive that arrest. They receive that punishment from the authorities without repaying it. And then they go on to bless by continuing to to preach the name of Christ. It's it's quite astounding to watch them. You know, they get thrown in prison. They get reprimanded for preaching Christ. They get let go. And then what do they do? They go back to doing the, the very thing that got them thrown into prison in the first place. But I, I think that's a I think that's a great example of of what Peter or one of many. It's not the only one, but it, it is a, a good example, I think, of what Peter's talking about. That that as I'm receiving evil from whoever it may be, what do I do in return? I bless. And even if even if it's the, the thing that's causing me to receive the evil, you know, I, I receive evil from the world because I speak the name of Jesus. What do I continue to do? I continue to speak the name of Jesus because I know that's the blessing that the world actually needs. And again, there's there's a variety of examples that we could think about, but that's one, at least from the scriptures, that comes to my mind. Right, sure. So yeah, the apostles, when they're sent forth, what they have to undergo, what they have to endure— a uh, powerful example there, of course, the, the the example of Jesus that Peter gives us is tremendous, too, when he's being mocked and ridiculed, 
You know, he doesn't just call upon legions of angels, but he endures his suffering. And there's even from the cross the line, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And this is a good a good word for us today, especially as, you know, the pressure on Christians is increasing, and we're going through tremendous things ourselves as the body of Christ, you know, as we are, are, are beginning to feel what it is like to be a Christian in a real hostile wicked world. How should we treat those who persecute us? You know, what should we do? And the temptation is to take vengeance. The temptation is to revile. The temptation is to mock and ridicule and really sink to their level. But that's that's not what Peter is calling his people to do, and that's not what he's calling us to do either. So it's a good lesson. It's one that merits repentance on our part, because it's, it's hard to do, and we, we certainly do fail at that. But this is why God sustains us, right? And this is why God gives us faith and nourishes us in that faith, that by faith we would do the right thing and see our enemy as not one that we need to take care of by conquering and reviling them. Vengeance does belong to God. He knows how to do those things, to take care of the enemy. We entrust our souls to them, and as you said, we continue to bless. It'll be fine. From from that, Peter then backs this up with a, an extended quotation from the Old Testament. This is from Psalm 34, what Peter quotes in verses 10 through 12 here. There's well before we before we talk about what he particularly quotes, is is there anything from from Psalm 34 itself as a, a wider context that's that's helpful to know and then start taking us into what Peter actually says. Right, well you know, Psalm 34 is one that is just filled with really, you know, man, if I had to summarize it, I would say this is a one that it's filled with pregnant pregnant passages, but it's one of a reminder of God's love for us and really an invitation for us to come, taste and see that the Lord is good and this is why he is good. Um, so it's really filled with the Lord's invitation for us to believe, to trust, to look to him for all the good things. It says in here that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. The psalm talks about the afflictions of the righteous, and we've already touched upon that Peter's hearers would have been undergoing various afflictions. So it's really the Holy Spirit calling us to believe, uh, taste and see the Lord is good. I think that is the right summary of 34. And yes, it's from 34 that Peter gets this quotation. On the quotation itself, um, you know, it's it's very close to the Old Testament Greek, very close to the Hebrew. It's not an exact quotation, but the content doctrine is certainly there. You know, one thing I read on this that I think is, is kind of interesting is that at the end of the quotation in Psalm 34, uh, there there is the line of the face, I'm, on, I'm reading verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, now Peter will stop right there in his quotation, but... In the Old Testament, it goes on to say, um, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Mm. And the reason, perhaps, that St. Peter doesn't go on is to leave a little room for repentance, that before the cutoff, perhaps people would hear this and repent. And I, I, I like that. we got to pay close attention to how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament, because there's always something to learn from it. Um, but yes, 34... Taste and see the Lord is good. Of course, living the Christian life is all over the place, you know, what we are to do. Um, and and that's, that's going to play, you know, like I said, a tremendous part 
for Peter's hearers as they're undergoing affliction, and they, they need to be reminded of where the good things are as they undergo the storms. Mm. Yeah, Peter, Peter actually already pulled that phrase from Psalm 34 back in chapter 2, where he talked about Christians being newborn babies, longing for the pure spiritual milk. And then he says, you know, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord of Lord is good. So it's, and I, I mean, I hesitate to to delve too much into the mind of Peter as he writes this epistle, because I know it's his, his mind is far deeper than, than mine is on this case. But it, it seems that he's got Psalm 34 on his mind more than once here in this epistle. The, the other thing that, that stands out to me about Psalm 34, before we dig into what Peter actually quotes from that psalm, is the, the superscription that's given above Psalm 34. It says, it says this, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now that's that's probably not the the most well-known incident in David's life. And and this is it's it's a moment in David's life where he he acts kind of crazy in front of the Philistines so that they'll kind of let him go his way. But the the reason I bring that up is because it's it's within the larger context in 1 Samuel, this is that that particular reference is in 1 Samuel 21, but it's in a larger context of where uh, David is not king yet. Saul is king, and Saul recognizes that David is going to be the next king and sees him as a threat, and Saul wants to kill David. And so it's in this larger context of David running from from Saul because he's he's scared for his life. And it's not long after that where there is a, an event that maybe is a little more well known from David's life where He's, he's hiding in a cave and Saul comes into that cave without realizing David's there. And, and David actually goes and, and cuts off part of his garment to, and he doesn't end up harming Saul. And, and I think, I mean, it's, I, and again, I'm not sure about this, but it seems like that, that context would have fit well with what Peter wants for his hearers, for his readers of this epistle. David stands as an example of one who did not repay evil with evil, but rather blessed. I think all of that is tremendous. I mean, it, and I didn't go a lot into the background of Psalm 34, but I'm really glad you did, because David had every opportunity to take out Saul, and he didn't. And, you know, I teach religion here at Grace, and so rather recently, we went through First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel. We're in Second Kings right now, around chapter 9, and they're, I mean, they're on pins and needles waiting to hear how Jezebel gets it, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> um, but th- this is kind of on my mind as well, because I made the point to the students that, yes, he had every opportunity to take out Saul, and he doesn't do it. And that flows into what St. P- Peter is saying about being submission to authorities, okay? Don't take it upon yourself to go rebel and overthrow them, but it, it does make you wonder— after reading Psalm 34, and in the background of Abimelech and David on the run, that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to dismiss that that was on Peter's mind when he's writing to his people. And his people, I mean, if they were a catechized, a well-catechized uh, group of people, of Christians reading this, and if they knew the Old Testament well, I can't help but think that they would have picked up on that. So take us into the the words that Peter actually quotes from Psalm 34 here in chapter 3. He starts, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Again, this is from Psalm 34. Uh, What's Peter's point as he opens with this part of the quotation? Well, I think it's remarkable he talks about the tongue first and foremost. Watch what you say and watch what you speak. So the Eighth Commandment should come to our mind that we we shouldn't curse, swear, 
lie, deceive, and so forth. The tongue can cause all sorts of problems. If you love life and you want to see good days, well, watch what you say. And anyone who has, you know, put their foot in their mouth, having said something they shouldn't say, well, no, they can cause a lot of problems when you just cannot speak the right things or you say something at the wrong time and it, it harms your neighbor. Um, and speaking deceit, too. You're not honest. You're trying to hide things. That's, that's not good. If you love life and you want to see good days, then your tongue, God has given you a tongue, and that is a great, tremendous opportunity to bless and to speak the, the majesties and the excellencies of our Lord Jesus. I mean, going back to that first Peter 2, 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. You know, that's not speaking deceit, but that's speaking the good things that people need to hear. It's a great opportunity, you know, if we seek a good life and we love life and we want to see good days, let's start by saying the right thing. And again, anyone who has said the wrong thing, gossiped, lied, slandered. It just causes all sorts of problems, and it doesn't make for a good life. As Peter continues in that quotation, he says, let him, this person who keeps his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For for our world today, uh, words like evil and good and even peace are such big terms and have been filled by our culture with a variety of meanings that honestly are just not true, we need to make sure we understand what is what is this part of the psalm saying. Right. Well, evil and good, uh, you know, I mean, what else is there but to understand God's definition of what is evil and good, which requires knowing his word. And I think it's interesting that the speaker of deceit is also called to turn from evil, which uh, logically means the speaker of deceit is one who is in tune with evil, and that's why they're lying and even suppressing the truth and speaking deceitfully is because they're caught up in evil. And certainly in the world today, there's no shortage of deceitful speaking, people saying one thing but meaning something else. We hear it in the media. I mean, just examples abound. Um, But first and foremost, we need to understand what is good and what is evil. And, I mean, you're spot on. This is probably a conversation point for a different day. But, you know, what is good and evil to the world? Well, the the answer to that question is going to be different than what the Church sees as good and what is evil. And so let's stop speaking deceit, but we can speak honestly and truthfully according to what God has said, and then seek peace and pursue it. So we know what is good, we know what is right, and not only do we seek peace, but we actively pursue it. It's not just some abstract idea in the Church, but something we labor for and work towards. So even when our neighbor is mad at us, we don't just throw up our arms and say, oh, well, they just need to get over it. Uh, No, pursuing peace, doing what you can, working the angles to calm the waters, and do so faithfully. I mean, it's, it's a constant labor on part of the Christian but something we need to do, even though it is very difficult, we're called to do it. And as you're talking about the the matters of, you know, watch out for the deceit, watch what you're speaking, and turn from that, do good. My, my mind went back to, you know, those words sounded familiar, and, and not all the, the exact same terms are used here, but back at the very beginning of chapter two, Peter talked like this. He said, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, lots of sins of the tongue, but you know, he didn't just leave it at put those things away. He said, turn toward, 
like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, which is the Lord's word. I mean, so, you know, it, again, Peter is it just the way that, that his epistle is just packed with these connections that he's, he's making and he's drawing from, you know, Psalm 34 and other things that he's already written. It's, it's just marvelous. Now, he, he concludes this quotation in verse 12, talking about the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears open to their prayer. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Take us into that last verse. Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. The righteous ones, I mean, that term righteous, you can read Romans, for example, but but I mean also Peter's epistle to understand what does it mean to be righteous before God is to be the one who possesses his righteousness, the one who is living by faith, possessing that imperishable inheritance. The Lord, is, of, of course, he is favorable towards such people. Uh, he doesn't see your sin, meaning your sins have been forgiven and atoned for by Christ, and they're not held against you. That's what I mean by that. And his eyes are on you in a good way, in a favorable way. And he hears your prayers, because you pray with the Holy Spirit, who is always interceding, and he promises always to hear his children who are in the right, reconciled relationship with him, again, for the sake of the crucified and risen Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Opposite it is for the unbeliever, the ones who do evil. We're talking about the ones who are living in wickedness, practicing sin, the ones dwelling in unbelief. To them, God's face is against them. And as I mentioned earlier, Peter cuts off. uh, he, He just stops short from saying, and their memory will be cut off from the earth, And I like the idea that to people hearing this, we pray that they would repent. Nobody wants the Lord's face against them. And when the terrors of the law fill a person and they realize they have sinned, um, would that we would be quick to proclaim the excellencies, the majesty of him who called us out of darkness into light. And that, again, is the call of the Christian. So still a lot right there, um, but we pray and all of this, that the Lord would give us the strength to do this, that he would sustain us, and our, our living would be um, acceptable to him. And, uh, you know, to end on this note, when I talk about Christian living, we always want to take it back to our identity, that we are God's children, he does love us, he loves us enough to hold nothing back, including the sending of his Son. We actually have about five minutes still to, to talk a little bit, so we, we can we can reflect on this a little bit. One of the a couple of, of thoughts come to mind with verse 12. I think this is probably the most important one as, as I'm thinking through this. You think about what Peter has been doing with his table of duties. And I mean, how easy it would be for someone living as a Christian underneath Roman rule. You know, who who cares about me? I'm just this lowly subject and my own government is persecuting me for being a Christian. Or a, a servant living under a master who's not a Christian, who's being completely unjust. Who cares about me? Boy, this this last verse here that Peter quotes from Psalm 34, what a comfort that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. These these seemingly lowly things that I'm doing of of simply, you know, being subject to the government, of obeying the the person who's who has authority over me. It doesn't look like anything before the eyes of the world. This this matter of, you know, receiving evil and returning it with blessing. That that looks like, I mean, the world's just stepping on me. But God, God is looking at that, and and His eyes see that, and His ears are open to your prayer as you as you receive that suffering, and you call out to Him, He's listening. You know, I mean, and, and thinking through, I mean, He's listening to you in your suffering. Think about 
how he he heard the cries of his people when they were in slavery in Egypt. And he's also listening, as you've you've pointed out to us several times, he's listening to that prayer that you're offering along with Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. He's listening to those prayers. I mean, it's just a that that verse is is a wonderful comfort to Christians as they are seeking to do these things, which as you said are are terribly difficult. But, but we know that, that as we're doing them, boy, the Lord is looking at us. He's listening to us. And, and what a great comfort to Christians living under that, that sort of suffering to know that, that the Lord is, in fact, on our side. So just so you know, we've got about three minutes here to, to wrap things up, this conversation this morning. Yes. It's easy to get lost in depression and anxiety and in fear and succumb to the devil's voice that says God has paid no attention to you and he's not looking at you, right? But we serve the God who has the hairs on our head numbered, the God who sees every sparrow fall, the God who tells the lightning where to strike, the waves where to crash. He puts the stars in the heavens. He knows all things. He knows you, and his eyes are on the righteous. I mean, it's a very simple, it's a very simple statement it's Bible 101 that God loves you and that Jesus loves you, but it's one we need to hear often. You know, as a headmaster, I deal with a lot of a, ki- a lot of kids um, who I look at them and I think, you know, th- their problem is their chief problem is they need attention and th- they need to be reminded that they are loved, that God does love them and His eyes are on them. So the application of a verse like this is is just tremendous. And we have to continue to bear in mind, just telling somebody that God's eyes are on the righteous. And oh, by the way, that righteousness is not dependent upon your flesh and your own strength. It's even better. God has given it to you for the sake of his Son, and that's why he hears you, and that's why he loves you. Um, That's the essence of what Peter is saying here, and that's going to be the message that takes us through these trials. As we undergo various uh, uh, persecutions, it's okay. Getting back to Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us today with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. Anytime, Pastor Apple. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. share is coming up here on KFUO April 22nd through 24th. We would love to have you partner with us to share with the world Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Listen April 22nd through 24th to share on KFUO. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.